Uh, I want you to look again at Isaiah chapter 9, and I want you to look at that first verse for us. And look at, some of the, look at the way that the prophet Isaiah introduces the ninth chapter of his oracles to the nation of Israel. Look at verse 1, where the prophet Isaiah says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. There's a curious word as he begins verse 1, as he says, nevertheless, which should call to mind that this specific paragraph or this specific message as he is beginning here is, read, is meant to be read in conjunction with what came before. It's a word of interjection. It's a word of uh, perhaps interruption almost. And you can sense that as you examine chapters 7 and 8 that there's this interruption of hope that begins here in chapter 9. But if you examine chapters 7 and 8, there's some really uh, important insights that will give us a a really important context to uh, this message that appears in chapter 9. Go back to chapter 7, and Isaiah is giving this message to the king Ahaz. Notice verse 1, now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Serious forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart, that is Ahaz's, and the hearts of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Very powerful picturesque verses here, as, as here we are given a lot of information regarding the state of Israel's condition. If you might know, at this time, Israel is a divided people. A northern kingdom and a southern kingdom now make up what was once a united people of God. And they're not just divided, they're warring with one another and against one another. Conflict now reigns where the people of God once enjoyed peace with God and with each other. There's not much in the way that is joyful. There's not much in the way that is peaceful in these times. A divided kingdom. And not just divided, they're detached. They're detached from one another. They're detached from God. That beautiful but also haunting picture that is included in verse 2. That the people were moved as the trees are moved with the wind. They are shaken. Shaken because they are divided. Shaken because they are detached. And there's nothing to keep them grounded or solid because they have forgotten their God. It also introduces us to this king Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of Judah at this point, and he is not a good king. Both houses, the northern and the southern house, are in the midst of cycles of good and bad kings. You can read some of the books of the Old Testament, 2 Kings and Chronicles, for instance, and you can see these patterns of kings and monarchs that come to the throne, and it will say one is good and the other is bad, and so on and so forth, and there's this pattern of rebellion and repentance and rebellion yet again. And Ahaz is one of these rebellious kings. As it says in 2 Chronicles 28, that this Ahaz did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was a rebellious king, uh, encouraging the people of God, the people of Judah, to uh, worship in the houses of Baal rather than the houses of God. He turned away from Jehovah. 
Further leading God's people into gloom and darkness and blindness. There's a specific interesting phrase though. You don't have to go there, but it's in 2 Chronicles 28. Which describes King Ahaz as not doing what his father David had done. Which is an interesting way to describe him. Seeing as his immediate father was of course not King David. It is as we have here in chapter 7 verse 1 of Isaiah. It is Uzziah. King of Judah is his father. So it's interesting that he's described as departing from what his father David has done. But this is indicative of much of the Old Testament which describes and upholds King David, the last sort of uh, paragon and an exemplary king of Israel as the standard by which all kings are measured. So if you are a king who is obeying Jehovah, you are following, so to speak, in the footsteps of David. The one who received the promise of Jehovah. And if you are rebelling, you are then said to be disobeying, so to speak, the archetype. Disobeying the standard, King David. You're rebelling against the ways of Jehovah. And again, here, we have this callback. The callback that is given as we are, we are told that Ahaz did not do what David had done. It brings us back to those promises given to King David in 2 Samuel 7. Where God promises to David that you, your throne, your rule, your house, so to speak, will be established forever. And yet we go decades further into the future here with King Ahaz. And those words to David seem very far off and forgotten. They seem like a long lost legend. Because now... The house is divided. Now God's people are at war. Now God's people are are anything but peaceful. Those words to David seem completely irrelevant. Completely untrue. And that that leads us to chapter 8 of Isaiah's prophecy. Look at verse 16. The people of God had completely forgotten God himself. Notice verse 16 of chapter 8. Isaiah prophesies, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And jump down to verse 19. And it says, and when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it. Hard pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness. Gloom of anguish and they will be driven into darkness. Israel had forgotten the words of their God. They had forgotten the things of quote King David. And now they had veered into sorcery. They had gone into uh, dark corners to find wisdom. To find insight. As it says they are seeking out mediums and wizards. To give them truth. To give them light. To give them hope. They were seeking out other places of hope and light. Other than God's word. They were neglecting the truth that they had. And replacing it with superstition. And false gods. It's a dismal state. It's a dark, uh, a dark condition that Israel is now in. Such is why we have this description of gloom that's here Isaiah describes them in. Notice verse 22 again. They will see, or excuse me, they will look to the earth 
and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish. Why? Because they had forgotten their God. They'd forgotten who God was and that God was no longer a, a place or a priority to them. And yet we have this interjection of hope that begins here in verse 1 of chapter 9. Nevertheless the gloom. Despite all that. Despite that dismal darkness that you are now living in because you had forgotten God. We have this promise. The promise of verse 2. That the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That the gloom will dissipate by this one who comes into the darkness. And who is this one? It's the one that is prophesied to us in chapter 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that we know means God with us. This is the promise that is carried forward. In chapters 8 and more specifically here in chapter 9. This interjection of hope and light that comes into the darkness is this one that is prophesied. The sign is Emmanuel. Unlike Ahaz. God would raise up one who would be faithful. One who would remember the things of David. He would be the one who would fulfill the prophecies Of David's house. He would be the consummate king. That Israel had so longed for. Notice what it says in verse 6. Of this prophecy. For unto us. A child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. Prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The appalling gloom. Of forgetting the ideal of David, so to speak. By forgetting the promises and covenants that were made with that paragon of the king, David. Are here fulfilled as we are given this message of a child born to us. As it says, who is going to sit on David's throne. He's going to be a prince of peace. The war is going to come to an end. The the displacement, the dislodging, the detachment, the division is going to cease because of this prince of peace. That title at the close of verse 6 I think is indicative of all of this child's work. This child who is born to us, the son who is given to us, as it says here, is going to be this heavenly prince who is going to usher in the peace of heaven through his word and through his work. It's going to be on his shoulders to perform it, on his, it is his burden to bring it about. And such is what the angels herald. If you remember from Luke chapter 2 verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace. Good will toward men. 
Here we have that announcement which is hearkening back to this prophecy. That the child would be a prince of peace. And his ministry would one, be one of making peace between us and between us and the Father. No more division. No more gloom. No more darkness. God is going to interject and interrupt our gloom and darkness and make peace by establishing it himself. How, you might ask? Well, I'm going to look at those other three titles that are given to this child. Because I think they suggest to us three operations of this one who is promised to come to us. And establish peace where there is darkness. Listen, the number one, the first title, it says, Wonderful Counselor. Here I think we have the Wonderful Counselor who silences every boast. It says, For unto us a child is born, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. The office of a counselor, I think, is very important to note, especially as we were looking at at chapters 7 and 8, and Israel's neglect of the words of God. They have forgotten the law, forgotten the testimony, such as why Isaiah says, to the law, to the testimony. Remember the things of God and remember his words. Here, this counselor. This counselor is given to them for their failure to bind God's words to their hearts and souls and minds. Their failure is solved by this counselor who comes to them and he's going to bring God's testimony to them. The darkness presented by their neglect of the testimony would be solved by this wonderful counselor who comes to bring them light. But what makes him wonderful? If you think about it, if you were to go to a counselor today, in our modern day and age, you might liken them to sort of a giver of advice. They have wisdom to provide for perhaps a a situation, an ordeal or circumstance that you are enduring. And you come to this counselor to gain insight or wisdom that you otherwise might not be able to see. And a counselor in that scenario... He resolves problems by giving you wisdom. And it is your obligation then to sort of follow what he says or put into practice what he prescribes. If you follow the counsel more often than not, the issues might subside. The problems might cease, so to speak. So we have that sort of uh, that picture in our mind's eye of this sort of counselor. But he is an altogether different counselor because he is called a wonderful counselor. He's not just come to give us advice. He's come to give us something far greater, far different. Notice verses 1 and 2. Notice where this light first shines. Notice it says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Notice those, those two cities that he mentions, those two regions, Zebulun and Naphtali, they were the fringes of the northern kingdom. 
on the uttermost outskirts of the borders of Judah. And they were known for being the most vulnerable spots of the kingdom. Chinks in the armor, so to speak. The weak links as, uh, of the kingdom. Whenever uh, a foreign nation would want to invade, they were among the first sites to begin their siege. They were also infested with Gentile influence. They were riddled with heathen influence among all of their practices and customs and cultures and peoples. They were known for being weak. And yet, yet to these furthest reaches... These fringes of, of this kingdom, in this, as it says there in verse 2, this land of shadow of death. Upon them this great light has shined. Upon them this great light of the promise of God's child has illumined their darkness. See, this light that pierces Israel's gloom is indicative of the, of the God that we have. It's indicative of his heart. Because you see, just as God was predisposed to give these nations on the fringes his great light, God is predisposed to move to the most vulnerable and damaged and despairing people and give them his light. He's predisposed to move to vulnerable people, people who are lost and broken and riddled with broken hearts. Such is what God's son does. As we know from the gospels. Luke 19.10 tells us. That he has come to seek and to save those who are lost. He has come to the fringes. To the fringes where darkness reigns. To bring his great light to them. This is Jesus. The light of the world. As we are told is his title in John chapter 8 verse 12. He is the light that has come to push back the darkness. It is this Jesus. The Christ. Notice with me. Go to John chapter 1. We have this laid out for us as the, as the evangelist John here begins his gospel with verses that hearken back to this very promise of the light that pierces Israel's darkness. Notice verse 1 of John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him nothing was made that was made. And it was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. This, my friends, is Jesus Christ. He has come to the fringes. He has come to those in darkness to bring his great light of peace and hope and joy and truth. And he says, this is the one. This is your wonderful counselor. This is who Jesus is. He is the word of God. He is God's counsel to us in the form of a man. And his truly wonderful counsel. That word literally means extraordinary, beyond expression. It is too great for words. That's what his counsel is. Why? Because he's not just like a counselor that we have who listens to us, listens to what plagues us, listens to what is bringing us down in all of our heaviness and despair and grief and gloom and then offers advice. No, he's an altogether different counselor. 
Because he takes on. He shoulders what plagues us. He shoulders the gloom on our behalf and offers himself. He offers himself as substitute. He takes our place. No other counselor does that. No other counselor offers himself into the place of those who are damaged and bruised and vulnerable. Yet this wonderful counselor does. He's an extraordinary counselor who comes to our side and remedies the curse as it says in Galatians chapter 3. Not just by seeing the curse and speaking wisdom to the curse, but Galatians 3.13 by becoming the curse for us. That's the type of counselor you have. A counselor who takes your place. This, I think, is the miracle of all miracles. That we have a counselor, a wonderful counselor, who silences every boast. But number two, look at verses three through five. Because this child is also the mighty God who ends every battle. The mighty God who ends every battle. Notice verse six, it says, For unto us a child is born, and his name will be called Mighty God. Mighty is a word that suggests word or thoughts and images and pictures of bravery and strength as one who comes as a combatant, a warrior. And if you read verses 3 through 5, you have that very picture. That this one who comes, this one who is promised to Israel, is coming to end all of Israel's conflicts. Notice verse 3. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood. They will be used for burning and fuel of fire. As we saw previously, violence and war and bloodshed and conflict is so indicative of God's people during this time. They have nothing in the way of peace. There is no end to their struggles. With one another, with against other foreign nations. And they are desperate, desperate for some monarch, some king to usher in a reign of peace. They keep looking to the next one. To the next one. To the next one. And there's no peace to be found in their house. And yet. Yet this prophet Isaiah. He gives them the message that a child will do this. That a child is going to be born to you. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And he will be called the mighty God. And he's not just be mighty in battle. He's going to be completely victorious. Again verse 5. Every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. All the instruments of war, they're no longer necessary. All of our weapons are laid down. All of our, our garments and our armor used for conflict are being burned. Why? Because peace is now established through this mighty God. Who ends every battle. 
But notice again, verse 6, because Isaiah promises and prophesies that the one that you are looking to, who is going to usher in this peace, for unto us a child is born. Their hope was a baby. Their hope for all of this to come about was an infant. Can anything be more surprising? Could anything be more astounding? A newborn. A newborn is defenseless many times. Helpless and weak. With not a strong immune system to fight off things that might otherwise harm them. They're dependent totally upon their mother and father. And yet, Israel's hope was bound up in a king that Isaiah says is going to come to them as a swaddled infant. What you long for is going to come to you as a weak baby. A child born to you. A son given to you. And yet despite the weakness of this infant king. His kingdom will reign as a kingdom of peace. And he's going to be the mighty God. In the form of an infant. The mighty God of mighty gods. He is going to be your hope. This is the surprising message given to Israel. (laughs) And guess what? This is your hope as well this morning. Your hope is that the God who comes to end every battle that we have, whether real or whether spiritual, it is this God, this God who comes in the form of a baby, who comes in the form of a newborn. That's what those words, those titles in verse 6, child and son, really suggest. They suggest Jesus' humanity, the fact that he comes in human form with flesh and blood. This is what we know, as we know in this season, is called the doctrine of the incarnation. Christ, the Son of God, taking on human flesh, which C.S. Lewis describes as the grandest miracle of all. It's a grand miracle of miracles that the mighty God of all things would come in human form, take on skin and bone and flesh and blood, and yet this is what he has done. He has come and participates in our nature, yet without sin. I think of those. You don't have to turn there. You can write these down because these words are so incredible. I read to them to you a couple of weeks ago from Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to verses 8 and 9. Hebrews 2, 8. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And how does he taste death? Verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise shared in the same. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Did you catch what the writer to the Hebrews there says? It's so important that we who share in flesh and blood as human beings with hearts that pump blood through our veins. Jesus himself, God's only begotten son, has come to share in the same. 
Why? So that he without sin might be our perfect payment and ransom from sin. So that he might separate us as far from the curse that's found, as the hymn says. That he might be our atonement, our payment, our salvation. This is the depth of wonder that is here in this season of Christmas. The incarnation itself. That God would come in human form. Come in the form of an infant. I think the longer you think about that fact alone, the more wonderful it gets. To sit and think that the God of the universe had to learn how to hold his head up. (laughs) That the God of all things had to be taught how to talk. J.I. Packer, one of the most eminent theologians of uh, America's history who recently passed away. He says this regarding the incarnation. Jesus coming to earth as a baby. He says it is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas. That the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. That the almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. Unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises. Needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the son of God was reality. And the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. And it's not just fantastic. It's not just a revelation that we should be astounded by. It's a revelation. It's a truth that we should hold dearest to our hearts. As cherished as the resurrection is to us that we celebrate at Easter, so too should the incarnation be held as the bookends of our faith. Without which our faith would be vain. You see the incarnation isn't just important at Christmas time. (laughs) It's important all year round. Because we have a savior who shares in our nature yet without sin. Which leads us to know that we have this companion, this comforter, this savior. This one who comes to die for all that plagues us. Yes. He's the mighty God who comes to end every battle. And he does so by coming in the form of a baby. This is what this season is meant to make us remember. This extraordinary truth. The truth that God loved us so much to so high a degree. That became what we are. That he might make us what we ought to be. This is that remarkable fact. God's answer to sin, the sin that ravaged the world, the sin that broke creation, that fractured all the things that he called good and very good. The answer to all of that is the form of this child. This child who was born to us. The one who would shoulder the word world sin, how to learn, how to hold up his head. And yes, the same one is here promised who is going to crush the head of a serpent. He is in the form of a baby. This is the mighty God, the wonderful counselor. And number three, this child is the everlasting father who confirms every blessing. The everlasting father who confirms every blessing. Look at verse 6 again. For unto us a child is born. 
And unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Here we have this promise that Isaiah gives to Israel, that they are going to have one that comes to them as a father who is everlasting, whose reign will see no end. This reign of peace that is going to be on the shoulders of this child is a reinstatement, again, of all of the ideals of the promises given to David. Notice verse 7. This everlasting father, this prince of peace, of the increase of his government, he says, in peace there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. He's going to sit on David's throne. Sit on the throne that God had promised long ago will be established forever. So yes, that legend of the promise to David, it's not just a legend, it's true. It's not just a myth, it's fact. That this is God's promise in the far off memory, Israel, that you might have of what God had promised to that long forgotten king. It has not been forgotten by this God. Because what he promises, he will accomplish. What he says he will do, it will come to pass through the workings and words of this child born to you. Such is why Israel could rejoice. You notice verse 3. Notice all the mentions of joy. You have multiplied the nation and increases joy. And they rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The rejoicing over something that hasn't happened yet. There's no victory been given to them. And God is giving them the promise that you can rejoice as men who have already achieved victory. And are now dividing the spoils among themselves. It's as good as if it's already happened. That's how sure the words of this God are. That's how sure the words and works of this child are going to be. Because it's as good as if it's already happened. This is this everlasting father who secures and confirms every blessing, every promise, everything that Israel was longing for is confirmed in the promise of this son, this child. It's as good as done. Peace is as good as here because God's words are as good as facts. You can count on them. You can bank on them. You can trust your life on them. Notice, I love what Isaiah includes there in verse 4. Talking about the victory of this mighty God, the establishment of peace of this everlasting Father. And he says, and he includes that detail. As in the day of Midian. If you remember, Midian was the site of Gideon's victory. Judges chapter 6 through 8 record that for us. I love that story. Gideon, mighty man of valor, who was not quite valorous, not quite heroic. If you read the story, read it from this viewpoint that Gideon was one who was constantly doubting God at every step. And yet God had guaranteed victory before he had even lifted a finger. 
From the initial promise, from the the moment that the angel of the Lord meets Gideon in Judges chapter 6, he gives Gideon the assurance that I have delivered them into your hand already. No preparations for war had begun. No sort of arrangement or marshalling of troops had even been thought about. And the promise of victory was already given to him. And here, Isaiah gives us the same promise. That as in the day of Midian, this God is going to achieve all victory according to his own will. As he says at the end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. All of this victory, all of this peace, all of this joy is going to be established by this king. And it's as good as if it's already established because this king is the everlasting father. He is the one who rules all things and reigns over all things. Israel's victory was the result of someone else's toil and struggle and war. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to perform this. He's going to make it happen. And just like at Midian where deliverance was promised before they lifted a finger. And just like here where Israel is given this wonderful prophecy of the king who is going to usher in peace. So it is with us this morning. That we have been promised a salvation. That it comes to us before we even lift a finger. The promise of the child. The coming of Christ. It confirms. That salvation would be paid for before you even thought it necessary. That salvation would be bought That your ransom from condemnation would be secured before the foundation of the world, as it says in Ephesians 1. This is what the gospel gives to us. This is the wonderful good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. Is that we, yes, we who believe in the salvation that Jesus the baby brought by his blood that was spilled at Calvary. Ensures for us a victory that we don't win. That's what salvation is, you know. Faith in Jesus is enjoying the spoils of a victory you didn't win. (laughs) And because you didn't win it, you cannot lose it. I won't beat around the bush, so to speak. (laughs) This year has been difficult. It's been 12 months of slog. (laughs) Of enduring. We might likewise sympathize with the people of Israel. Who feel and know that they are walking in darkness. Walking in gloom. And the same message comes to us. That the light of the world pierces the darkness. To establish A kingdom, a government of peace that shall have no end. In this life of the world, it's a baby boy who was born in a stall, unseen, unnoticed. This infant king 
was the infinite God of all things, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful Counselor of God's Word, who has come to us, yes, to pierce our darkness, to quell all of our feelings of gloom and heartache and anguish by driving us to see our deliverance is sure, our hope is found, as far from the curse is found. (laughs) Because he's separated us from the curse. He's remedied all of those things and brought us out of all of our distresses. By establishing peace according to his own zeal. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is your God. This is your Messiah. Your Prince of Peace. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray.